Kansas foster care system has been the subject of numerous heartbreaking stories as a surge in the number of children entering foster care strained the capabilities of the system and placed children's safety in jeopardy. While progress has been made in recent years, a lot of work remains. The financial scandal at St. Francis Ministries, the largest foster care contractor, renewed criticism of the state's privatized system. Laura Howard is focused on improving outcomes for children in state custody. She has decades of experience in social services and returned to state government in January of 2019 to lead the Department for Children and Families. That means she's in charge of approximately 6,800 kids in the Kansas foster care system, as well as support programs for parents and families. She also serves as Secretary of the Kansas Department for Aging and Disability Services. Secretary, welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. Thank you, Sherman. I'm glad to spend a few minutes with you. I'd like to, to start by talking about the, the progress that you've made in, in the foster care system since you took over in January of 2019. And if you can maybe just set the scene for us and describe the system that, that you inherited when you walked in the door and, and where we are at today. You know, I think it's really important to be able to talk about the, the journey a bit. Um, you know, when I walked into the door um, in January of 2019, Kansas had an unprecedented number of youth in care. You know, more than 7,600 uh, kids. Um, never had numbers been that high in terms of the number of youth in care. Um, but even more concerning, um, for those youth who were in care, lots and lots of instability. Um, kids moving around way too much. Um, there's a federal standard that's used to measure that. In Kansas, kids were moving around 9.9 times um, within a thousand days of care. Um, yeah, really, talking about kids who are going from one home to the other to the to the next. That's right. I mean, so what that means is, I mean, they they had no stability in their life. Um, and in mm. some cases, um, for some kids, that might mean several one night um, placements. Um, so going into a different home or going going into a group facility, going to a different place the next day. And when you think about sort of the needs of youth, it's already traumatic enough to be removed from your home, but then to come into a system and not find stability. Mm. So. So yeah, kids moving around way too much, uh, sometimes staying in offices. Um, there's been a lot of focus and attention on that. So kids staying in offices, sometimes night after night. Uh, we didn't have uh, very many kids um, in placements with relatives. Um, about 30, just over 30% of kids were in placements with relatives. And we know that if, if kids have to come into care, um, the ability to stay with a person that they know, that they already love, that they already have a connection with. So again, um, too many kids in care, a system in a lot of chaos, um, kids moving around, not finding stability, um, not very many placements with relatives, and frankly, not very many other resources in the prevention realm uh, to support families in Kansas. So that was that was really the picture walking in. Um, and so what we did really was to set about saying, you know, there's some things we really need to deal with at a foundation level very, very quickly around issues of placement stability, 
uh, around prevention in the state, around other options for families. At the same time, though, we also wanted to, to look more broadly and to say, while we're looking inside this system for the kids who come into care, um, providing the supports and services they need, improving that stability, we also want to focus on what does it mean to move from a state that is focused on a really reactive child protective system to a state that's proactive and that's really looking to address the needs of families um, before any maltreatment, before any abuse ever happens for a child, and providing those supports and services. So you'll hear me throughout our conversation kind of talk about those two tracks. But in yeah. terms of the progress we've made, um, you know, just maybe sticking a little bit with um, with those statistics and what that means for those youth what, what in the state. What is our placement stability metric now? Yeah, so placement stability has dropped um, almost in half, down to about 5.1 moves um, in those thousand day, in in a thousand days of care. You know, the federal standard that states aspire to is 4.4. We're getting very close to that. Very, very proud of mm. the progress that we've made in that area. Um, the number of youth in care um, has also declined to just about 6,800 as we sit here today. That's a 10% reduction um, of youth in care. And what I'm really proud of is we have fewer youth coming in the front door. Each of the last two years, the last two fiscal years, um, we've had reductions of 15% and then 11% of youth coming in the front door to care. Um, I think the third piece I'd say in terms of that progress, going back to your original question, uh, really, really proud of our focus on uh, supporting relatives and relatives being able to play a larger role in a, in a system that focuses more on kin. So we started out about 33% of our patients were with relatives. Um, we're now at 42% as we sit here today. And here in Shawnee County, 48% of youth in foster care are placed with a relative today. Mm. And a lot of that work is due to um, the practice models that we put into place. Uh, the prevention efforts that we put in place under Family First and, and efforts like that. I remember talking to uh, a, a girl a couple of years ago who had basically, she was in the system for five days. She would spend her day basically in an office and then mm-hmm. late at night, whatever the cutoff is to avoid counting as sleeping in an office, somebody would pick her up and take her sometimes to a, a family, sometimes to a shelter. And so it was a different place every night for five nights and on the fifth night, she jumped out a second-story window to run away, and I, you know, it, it strikes me that there seems to be this connection between the placement instability and the number of kids who, who run away from the system and, and wind up on the the missing list. And I, I believe you've made a lot of progress in in that regard as well. The number of kids who are missing at any time. We have made a lot of progress in terms of the number of kids missing at any time and the, and the number of kids who run more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you're right, placement stability is a huge part of that. And feeling like that that youth or child has someone who cares about them in their life. You know, we put into place um, some special response teams across the state um, that 
not only looked for kids who were missing, but really looked to build relationships, understand why those kids were running, um, you know, what was underneath that, try to give those youth more of a voice in their care. And that's been a partnership with us and the case management providers. It's, it's really had an amazing impact on that. Um, in fact, um, recently there was an operation um, by some of our federal partners um, in the state looking at human trafficking, looking at youth missing from foster care. They do this across the country. Um, this happened last month. And one of the um, federal agents commented on how much change he saw in terms of the number of youth missing from care and what a different operation yeah. it looked like today than two or three years ago. Yeah, we know that when, when kids at, at that age are on the run, uh, bad things happen to them. They do. They do. They can. Um, and that's why it's so important um, when youth have to come into care for them to have a sense of safety and security. Yeah. Yeah, your staff and also the, the professionals with the contractors talk about approaching this problem from you know, wanting to look at what a, trying to identify what a child is either running to or running away mm -hmm. from and trying to solve that, mm -hmm. that underlying issue. We, we had legislation this year that passed the Senate uh, that would have required a judge who believes a child may be at risk of running away to place them into a secure care facility. Is, how do you feel about that, that option? Very opposed to that option. You know, I think it comes from a, you know, probably a place of, of good intent from the legislators who proposed that. But I think it just fundamentally misunderstands um, youth and their needs. Um, and the impact of being, frankly, in group residential secure correctional like settings you know it's, it's just not good for youth every research and study tells us this children do better in family-based settings and it doesn't do anything to get to that fundamental reason you know maybe the child wants to have contact with certain people um, from their um, community um, it just whatever those underlying causes are, you know, how you framed it, what they're running from and to, doesn't get addressed by putting them in secure care. Right. We've talked about the some of the progress. There, there, I think you would recognize there's some progress still to be made. And the state settled a lawsuit with Kansas Appleseed over some of these issues. I think an agreement was reached last year and, and finalized in January. And this is a lawsuit that, that predates your, your arrival and, and Governor Laura Kelly's administration. But can you just explain a little about what, what it is that you're agreeing to in that, that settlement and how do you get there? Absolutely. You know, I think early after um, I started my tenure, we began sitting down with Appleseed and some of the, and there were some national plaintiffs as well from some national children's rights agencies. And um, we began talking with them because fundamentally we shared the same goal. We wanted to improve the Kansas child welfare system. That's why I came back to the state, a key priority for the governor. So the key areas of focus in that are things we've already touched on in this conversation. Uh, placement stability, the largest one. Um, another area being the availability of mental health supports uh, for youth. So so we um, reached a settlement agreement um, with them, um, as you said, um, last year. What we've agreed to in that is to make progress on those key measures. We've already talked about the progress we've made in placement stability. Um, under that agreement, um, we, um, 
within four years um, need to be at the federal target of 4.4 moves. We're well on our way. We're well ahead of where we need to be in the first year or two of that settlement. Um, we also agreed under that settlement to ensure that kids wouldn't have any delays in accessing mental health services when they came into care. And we've made adjustments to our um, contracts. Um, this is with my KDATS hat um, with the community mental health centers to make sure that um, youth's needs are met, that they're assessed in a timely manner um, and that they're seen within certain prescribed timelines. Um, we also agreed to um, create some additional specialized services, uh, for example, to address the crisis needs that are out there. And I'm really excited that come October 1st, we'll be rolling out 24-7 uh, mobile crisis services to children mm -hmm. and families in Kansas. We recently entered into a contract with an entity called uh, Beacon, uh, Beacon Health Options. Um, they'll be setting up... Um, a crisis hotline, um, as well as uh, working with partners like community mental health centers to do 24-7 crisis response. And this is all kids and families in Kansas, not just kids and families that are in the foster care system. So I think that really helps us to um, avert um, children coming into care who may have mental health needs. It also helps to um, keep children in placements, keep placements stable, and assure that youth access more intensive services when they need those. So, um, so there's a lot of you know details in the settlement. Um, you know, we also need to report on um, you know the elimination of, of office days, uh, you know things like that. But the broad areas are really around placement stability and um, behavioral health services for youth. Um, so we're well on our way. Um, we brought in um, an, an entity called the Center for the Study of Social Policy, very well known in the child welfare world, to be our data validator. Um, we've created an advisory committee that has foster youth, um, parents of youth who've been in care, foster parents, and a number of professionals. Um, that's an advisory group that's just had, um, they've had two meetings in, um, just in the last um, month and a half um, to begin to play kind of an advisory role as we move towards that settlement. So we're making great progress. It's very much in tune with the areas that um, I knew as I walked in the door, we just had to improve because it just wasn't acceptable for kids who came into our care to experience some of what they were experiencing. Not good for those kids, lifelong neg negative impacts. And again, we shared those same goals. We came to a collaborative agreement to, to, to meet those goals. Well on our way. Is it going to take more investment from the legislature financially, I mean, to, to accomplish these? Or are you able to, to do these things with, with what you've already been allocated? You know, the legislature and the governor have both been, you know, incredibly generous and focused on giving us the support we need. So in terms of the settlement itself, the only area where we felt like we needed targeted new resources outside of just the regular way in which child welfare is funded in the state was related to the mobile crisis response. The governor funded that last year. The legislature supported that funding. Um, and so, so that added about $5 million to our budget um, to, to implement the mobile crisis response. I think the remaining efforts, um, those get built into our regular budgeting process and um, Again, I, I, I can't say enough about the level of support from both the governor and legislature for the things that we need. 
Kansas Appleseed is also advocated for an Office of the Child Advocate. Do you think there's a, a place for that kind of uh, an additional oversight role to to work with the foster care system, people who have concerns uh, and, and maybe don't feel comfortable taking them to your agency? You know, I do. I really do, Sherman. I, when I look at how those entities have functioned in other states, including our sister state of Missouri, I think they can play a really valuable role. You know, the child welfare system is pretty complicated. It has a lot of players. You know, in this state where we um, have privatization, you even have a different layer where you have, um, you know, our case management providers, you have the state, you have the court system, you have other state agencies. So now I, I think the role of a child advocate would be a very, very valuable addition in Kansas. Um, just have testified in support of it a couple times. Um, I know it's gotten caught up in issues around where it should be located and things like that. But I think an independent entity outside of the child welfare system, outside of the judicial system um, is really um, would really really be valuable and I think would really be um, really be viewed as a neutral resource for um, for, for folks who are, are just struggling um, with navigating the system or struggling to understand maybe some decision-making that's happened there so. let's talk about some of the the initiatives that you've put in place or that um, that legislators have helped put in place uh, that you, you mentioned early on wanting to, to kind of change the focus and, and look more preventative measures. Uh, Family First is a federal program that the, the legislature provided some support for. I think Kansas was one of the first to enter into this in your first year uh, with the agency, I believe. Talk a little about what, what exactly that is, the, the, the type of investment this is, and how it's helping. So yeah, Family First, you're right. The federal government passed the um, Family First Prevention and Services Act in 2018. Um, and this was the first time the federal government was really investing federal foster care dollars in prevention, um, really providing those supports and services so youth didn't have to enter into care. Kansas, um, when we came in, um, we just decided immediately we were going to be an early adopter. Um, it, you know, I think I alluded to earlier, we had very limited prevention resources in the state, particularly connected to the child welfare system. We've had some fam we've had family preservation services, um, which is a particular program model, um, you know, since the 90s. Um, but that's really been it. We haven't had specialized behavioral health services, specialized parent skill building services, things like that. So family first, uh, you know, what's one of the things that I think is most valuable about it is the federal government approached it in such a way that they really wanted states to invest in in practices that have been proven to work. They set up a clearinghouse. Um, they've um, they vetted different models and practices. And you can do some others, but the level of, re of resource you get from the federal government's a little bit less. So yeah, we jumped right on it. We said we're going to be starting this the first day we're allowed to start it, which is October of 2019. 
we put out RFPs across the state and had amazing response from community partners. So we've stood up um, parent skill building contracts in every um, county in the state. Um, also um, contracts related to various mental health and substance use services, as well as some supports to um, what's called kinship support, which might help relatives or folks close to a family um, navigate maybe some legal things that they might need to do if they were willing to step in and help a child. So I was excited about it before we implemented it, but I'm even more excited now. Um, we've had 1,700 youth or so um, referred to um, Family First, and of those youth who were in, were in the program for 12 months, 89% um, of those have not entered into foster care. Mm -hmm. Our goal was 90% really close to that that means you know think about that's about 1500 um, youth and families in the state that were able to receive the supports they need to safely care for those kids at home rather than enter into care you know in families first it's not a primary prevention it's it's not it doesn't go way way um back before foster care it's it's targeted for those kids who are really at risk of going into foster care so there's issues going on there's things to be addressed it's been incredibly successful really across all those parameters the parent scale building the mental health supports and so i've really really appreciated how much the governor and the legislature supported that we'll be asking for more resources to expand that i still see some gaps particularly in the mental health and substance use areas where I'd like to expand some of those programs like multi-systemic therapy. That's a great program for um, adolescents where you may have some particular, um, you know, conduct issues going on in the home. Um, I want to expand um, the substance abuse arena as well. Um, so again, um, couldn't be more pleased with the impact of that program. And we see that when I talked about fewer youth coming into care, um, that's a significant component of that impact. And we know um, just the impact of coming into foster care can have a negative impact on kids. Um, so if we can serve folks safely in their, with their parents, in their communities, in their homes, provide those supports, that's a win for everybody. It's a win for those kids and families. It's a, it's, it's a win for all of us in Kansas. You've also implemented something called the Kansas Practice Model. Tell us what what that's all about, how it's helping to, I guess, engage families across Kansas? Yeah, one of the things I really saw, Sherman, when I came in was that we didn't really have a consistent approach for our workers, whether it was, um, you know, front-end workers at our protection report centers, our caseworkers when they were doing investigation, that we, we really weren't using sort of a model for how we approach and engage with families. So we've worked with, uh, you know, a number of um, national partners, Casey Foundation and others, to bring in some approaches, um, you know, team decision-making, uh, family finding. You'll hear the different approaches talked about, but the basic commonality they all have is they say, we're going to engage with youth, with parents, with kin, with relatives, with people in the community that are close to that youth at the front end of the process and at every stage of the process and say, what can we, all of us do together to keep this child safe? Um, so 
it's been incredibly effective as we've rolled this out across the state. Um, again, I, I think a significant impact sometimes in youth not coming into care because um, perhaps um, maybe a relative stepped up and said, you know, I, I think I could, you know, help for these next few months if I could get these supports. Um, you know, in terms of the length of stay in care for youth, um, as we've engaged, um, you know, families, youth, just getting those voices at the table, you know, saying, what are your goals? What are your goals? Um, what, what are the child's goals? What are the parents' goals? Who can help support that? Um, and the reason I feel so strongly about this is I think one of the things we often see so much is when people don't believe they have strong support networks or they may be isolated, um, you know, we're more, more likely to see those youth come into care. These models identify what those, what those supports might be, what those networks might be, and build those not just for the time of foster care, but really thinking over that lifelong trajectory and what does it mean to have those sorts of supports and networks that one needs to, um, you know, really um, keep a family together or keep a child safe. Yeah, the, the mental yeah. health experts in this field would, that mm-hmm. you know, they say that those support systems mm-hmm. are, are key to building resilience uh, and that sometimes that's the difference between you know, same thing that happens or same experience for for two kids. One one individual winds up with a you know long productive career, and somebody mm-hmm. else may end up in prison. And and the difference mm-hmm. a lot of times is that support system. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the one of the recurring themes here is is your efforts to really engage local local entities, local mm-hmm. organizations to mm-hmm. to connect them to families in within their communities. It's it's not all on the state to do this. Yeah, it's not all on the state, and it's not all about um, when, um, you know, a child has entered into care. I, I feel really, really strongly that we have to place our focus on on communities. And, you know, what we talk about, um, you know, thriving families, um, child and family well-being. I mean, the, the future of that, I mean, the best practice of that is really about how we strengthen the working communities. I can give you an example. Um, we're doing a project right now in Emporia where we're working with the school district. Uh, and and this kind of came out of um, you know some work during the pandemic when you know schools were closed um, things were coming up across the country about you know the reporting of abuse and neglect um, so we began to work with um, this school district to say what would it mean if um, you're not just mandated reporters um, which means you have to like report suspected abuse to our hotline, but you're mandated supporters where you're, you're identifying what might be those resources and supports that that family needs. Um, in many cases, meaning that there never is any formal contact with the child welfare system. It's really what we think of as kind of a family resource center model. Um, there's, there's family resource centers across the country could be connected to a school, could be connected to a library, could be connected to a community center um, that, that really looks at kind of a place-based approach to say, how do, we, how do we identify the needs that families have? They could be very concrete needs, um, like financial needs. They could be other kinds of support needs. We've got some great partners in this. We're working with the Children's Cabinet. We're working with the State Department of Education. We're working with Kansas Children's Service League, um, who runs um, the parent helpline in the state, um, which is an incredible resource. 
resource um, for parents. Um, but that hasn't been, um, there's not as much awareness about that as I'd like to see. So um, I really think, Sherman, the, the, the future really is about, again, that proactive approach where um, where people are coming together in communities and we're just one player in that to prevent maltreatment, to provide families with the supports and services they need and the connections and the networks um, to keep kids safe and to keep families thriving. I can see a number of ways where educators would play a vital role in this. Mm -hmm. We we talked earlier about trying to find that that spark or a connection Mm -hmm. to to keep Mm -hmm. a a child engaged. A lot of times it's a, a teacher. Oh, hugely! It can be the teacher, and and it's the and it's it's the consistent piece for a child across the state. We were talking about stability earlier. Oftentimes, it's it's that teacher. It's going to that school every day that can be that place of stability. And so I I've, I've just been really 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 thrilled with the participation with um, the education community and just their interest in saying, yeah. Um, we want to be a part of um, what it means to, we, we want our kids to be thriving. I mean, mm-hmm. they care so much about the kids they serve every day. My nephew teaches school and I, you know, I, in another state and I hear from him all the time. You know, he's called me several times to say, gosh, you know, what more can I do as a teacher to really help support um, the kids and families in my classroom? Mm-hmm. Schools play a, a role as well with, with free and reduced meals mm-hmm. and you know, I'm, I'm interested in this because I hear from advocates all the time who say that we confuse poverty and neglect. Uh, and, and I think what they're getting at is when, when families don't have the resources to, to feed their children, then, then that's one of the factors that can, can lead to a child ending up in the foster care system. Uh, and I know that there's been more food support recently because of the assistance from the federal government because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I, what happens when, when that money is gone? There has been more food assistance, you're right, uh, significantly um, more food assistance. So when that funding's gone, I mean, families will see, um, you know, reductions in the amount of assistance they're getting through our food assistance, through the SNAP program. One of the things we're doing really to be proactive is we've created kind of resource agents in our local offices, um, in our four major offices across the state, um, and we put them in place, and many, several of them, they're just in a very visible place when somebody walks into the lobby, um, and really sitting down and trying to make those connections, not just give a person a piece of paper, but how do you do a warm handoff to say, what might be those resources in the community? Really trying to make people aware um, of what those broader resources are and, and working really close with community partners on that. So that's sort of one piece we're doing that I, I think we're really excited about because again, it goes into that piece that we all need to work together um, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the supports and services that people need. We have a, a couple minutes left here. I'd like to go into kind of a lightning round of, sure. of questions. Uh, I've written about the, the financial problems at St. Francis Ministries, the, the largest contractor in the foster care system in, in Kansas. And uh, for those listening, if they don't know, they had a former CEO who was spending lavishly on himself and investing in some dubious operations in El Salvador and, and being dishonest with his board about... Uh, some other contracts, uh, some problems with an IT uh, vendor, and uh, a, a weird scheme to buy Cubs tickets and sell them on the secondary market for for a profit. 
Uh, and, and kind of a blurring of financial sources here that makes it hard to tell what money was being spent where, but I, I imagine it doesn't give you a lot of confidence that the Kansas taxpayer dollars are being spent appropriately. And I know you've been investigating this for about a year and a half now. We have been Sherman, and I really had two areas of focus when um, the issues came up at St. Francis with the prior CEO. One, I mean, the first, of course, was making sure that children and families were being taken care of. Mm -hmm. Um, The second, um, which you've alluded to, had to do with Kansas taxpayer dollars. Um, So we engaged um, an outside auditor outside of our agency to do a review, um, and it's been a long process. Um, we're getting very close to the end of that review. I mean, as we sit here today, um, we're not seeing significant issues of the sorts of things that you talked about being charged to the Kansas contract. So I feel good about that. I'm glad about that. Um, you, I, I might also um, just remind folks that recently um, we did come to an agreement with St. Francis to return about $9 million uh, related to the Kansas contract that um, they were supposed to be reinvesting in some added services in Kansas and had not done um, and they agreed to return those dollars and did that but in terms of the audit itself um, we are getting very close to um, the final stages of that we're not going to see things of great magnitude that that show that show that Kansas funds were misutilized so I'm really glad to see that um, you know, we're working very closely with st. Francis with the with the new interim CEO um, for how that organization can move forward in a positive manner. Um, And that's really our focus. When I've written about this, I I often hear from people who are upset about the privatization of the the child welfare system. And I wonder what your your thoughts on that are. This has happened for about 25 years now. I think it happened in the 1990s. What are the, the, the benefits or the drawbacks of being a privatized system? I actually went to what was then the 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 SRS agency, which then mm-hmm. managed um, child welfare in 1997, which was the year of privatization. Uh, so I've been able to really be a part of that since the beginning. You know, when I hear concerns about the privatized system, my view, Sherman, is that that things aren't really about the structure of the system. You know, the privatized system allowed us to do a lot of things. It allowed um, state workers to really focus at the front end on abuse and neglect investigations and making sure those were done strongly. And then it really enhanced, I think, the engagement in communities across the state by by having those private partners more, more engaged and active beyond just being placements for youth. So I see a lot of benefits in it. But the but the piece about privatization is, I think you have to have the right outcomes in your contracts. You have to have the right oversight and monitoring of those contracts. And and we've been very focused on how to get those um, those pieces in place, how to have that oversight. Um, but then also to begin to say, um, how do we make sure that um, that folks have that voice? Um, I think when you talked about the Office of Child Advocate earlier, I think some of the call for the Office of Child Advocate is the is um, the fact of 
you know, folks trying to maybe navigate between what what's the role of that um, child placing agency, what's the role of the case management agency, what's the role of the state, and maybe navigating those pieces. But I, I but I think privatization can bring can bring great gain so long as we um, have contracts that are focused on outcomes. We're doing monitoring and oversight of those contracts. Um, um, because I think we collectively bring a lot of resources, value, knowledge, and expertise to the table. I've written about a a tragedy involving an an autistic boy who is in the foster care system. And as part of that story, I kind of looked at the available resources for for kids who have autism, uh, really both in and outside of the, the foster care system. We we seem to have a shortage of, of kind of the, the high-level need, um, the, the high-level uh, specialists who can provide the care that these kids need. And I wonder what, uh, what efforts you're, you have to try to connect children with the services. Yeah, really, really important issue, Sherman, and really one that's, um, I think, been an issue for a number of years now. This one is really near and dear to me, both with the hat I wear as Secretary for DCF, but also the hat I wear as Secretary for the Department for Aging and Disability Services. And we manage the Autism Waiver, which is a very small Medicaid program for um, for youth in Kansas. Um, the, the issue is, as you've called it out, the primary issue in Kansas related to autism relates to workforce. Um, we don't have enough um, what we call um, applied behavior analysts. We don't have enough um, providers across the state who provide the services. That plays out um, in a significant way in foster care, uh, particularly if a child moves. Um, so what, I, what, I've, what I've decided to do, Sherman, is to get a time-limited work group together. And we've asked um, the Kansas Health Institute, which is a um, you know, nonpartisan you know, health research agency, to help us facilitate that work group. They've done some work in the past with other task forces on mental health and the foster care oversight group as well. Um, so we're going to have uh, parents at the table. We're going to have foster parents at the table. I think actually some parents some foster parents you talked about in the article that you wrote. Um, we're going to have youth at the table and a series of providers and, and just work through what are the options we have as a state? Where do we need revenue? Um, what are some innovative ways we can use to expand workforce? Um, I just want sort of a series of options. What can we do administratively? Where do we need legislative help? Who else do we need to partner with at educational institutions or other way, otherwise to make progress on this? There'll be some things that aren't as big as, you know, how do you grow the workforce? There'll be things like, you know, how do we make sure that, um, you know, foster parents are equipped with the training they need, um, you know, things like that, that we can do very quickly. But I, I feel like this issue has been brewing, I think, for a number of years across not just Kansas, but other states. And it's time we come up with an action plan um, that I won't be able to execute on my own, but we can certainly have in front of um, the legislature, the governor, and, and stakeholders and other partners to say, how can we make progress? It's so critical. It's so important. I was going to say, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that there's been an endeavor like this to tackle this issue, at, at least in, in recent history. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there was a legislative committee a number of years ago. It was pretty narrow in its focus then. And it actually led to, you know, I think some of the 
the new requirements and regulations around people providing those services. And those actually may be some of the things we want to revisit. Very good. It, you know, as part of that story, there were also some allegations of retaliation. And I know this is a concern that a lot of parents have when I've talked to them for stories, for various stories, that they feel like if they speak out, especially if they say anything to the media, that something is going to happen to them. Uh, and it's a complicated issue because I know that there are there are also reasons why some of the rules exist to protect the, the well-being of children, their their privacy, their safety. How do you feel when when you see these kind of allegations and, and what's your response to them? You know, when I hear allegations of retaliation, that's really, really concerning to me. I mean, you're right. Um, we, everyone in the system of child welfare operates within some confidentiality requirements, both federal and state, that are very important in terms of um, children and families. Um, but but usually that's not what they, usually those aren't the things that are being shared by parents or others who have concerns. Um, so what I would say is, um, one, I mean, retaliation is not acceptable. We do not do this in our agency. Um, we expect that our contractors or partners would also not act in that way. And frankly, the only way we can continue to improve the system um, and achieve the goals that we all want to achieve for children and families is if we hear the voices of everyone in the system. So, um, so again, I have no tolerance for retaliation. Um, I want folks to speak out. Um, I want them to contact me if they have issues, um, contact our agency. Um, and again, retaliation is just, just not tolerated. Okay. Secretary, thank you for joining us today on the, the podcast and talking about all of these issues. Thank you.